Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We are not doing this, however, without considering the works we are committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Hello, everybody. Let's get started. How's everybody doing? Well, we are continuing our Learning to Lead series. Tonight, we are going to talk about communication. And let's pause and let's pray before we get started. Father, we are aware of how important communication is to us. It's important to us in our relationship with friends, with spouses, When we're speaking to others about you, it's important in our relationship with you, God, to be clear, to be honest, to have communication that is open. And so I pray, Lord, the importance of this topic uh, will be understood, that you will help me in these words to be able to be clear. And may we draw from these things, Lord, uh, that will, something that will help us to be better communicators. And I do ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. I was thinking about this passage the other day as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about. And when I thought about communication, this is probably the portion of Scripture that has impacted me the most. If someone were to ask me, what, what's your most favorite uh, passage in the Bible? You know, that, that could mean so many things. Was it the one that inspired me, that helped me when I was discouraged? Or was it one that gave me direction? And this passage is definitely one of the ones that probably has directed me more than just about any that I can think of off the top of my head as Paul really starts to have this communication uh, with the people there in Athens. And as we talk about communication, I want us to understand that not all preaching and not all teaching is always communication. It should be, 
but it isn't always. However, there is preaching that communicates. There is teaching that communicates. The difference is how it is able to be uh, understood and what it does to the person who hears, how it enables conversation either to continue where sometimes preaching or teaching could be end of conversation. If you have a math teacher and they teach you a formula, usually it's the end of the conversation. There's not a lot of communication. They're talking about something, telling you what it is. Maybe they communicated it clearly, but that's the end of it. Two plus two equals four. There, that's what you need to know. There are some people who preach and teach in a similar manner. This is this, bum, 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 that's all you need to know. And it's no longer uh, open conversation. And what I want to do is talk about really the heart of a missional communication. Our first core value is mission is why the church exists. And so how do we have conversations and communication that has that in mind as we are followers of Jesus? How do we have communication that is missional? And so Acts chapter 17, I think, is the prime example. And we're going to start at verse 16 and read verses 16 and 17 right now. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I'm going to talk about five points of this communication. And the first one is communication must always be rooted in mission. In other words, there has to be a purpose behind the conversation that we're having. We have a goal that we're trying to reach in this communication. And what we see here about Paul as he's there in Athens is that he is provoked within him. Some translations say he was distressed, he was disturbed. There was something that rubbed him the wrong way because that's really what it means. It's kind of distress. It's the idea of things pressing together that was pushing him. And you see, as he was encountering people when he saw all these idols, and I mean, we have to remember that Rome is the center of the world and Athens is the really epicenter of where this ideal and this uh, philosophy originates. It's kind of the, the hub of the thinking world at that time. And here Paul goes into this very astute and learned place and he sees it given over to idolatry. And oh, it just gets him. It drives him. It pushes him because he cannot handle that these people are worshiping any and everything. The Greek word for distressed there is provoked, as it says there. And that's what it's, I don't know what translation you're reading, but it, it is, again, stirred, it is troubled. 
and it is moving him. He wanted these people to have a relationship that he now had with a living God. And so he was so hurt to see them in this position because he knew where he was now. And God looks and sees humanity worshiping idols, building their lives on everything and anything, things that will enslave them, things that will destroy them. And it's it's his love that brings Jesus to us. It's his love that moves Christ to the cross. In John 3.17, he says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, there is the mission. There is the purpose. There is the epicenter of what God is wanting to do in his communication. And that's what we see in Paul. And that's what we need to have as the epicenter of our communication. Because if I'm trying to talk to someone, whether it be a person who also believes in Christ but believes differently, if it's to talk with a Muslim or an atheist or a Buddhist, what is the center of why I'm communicating? And if it's not because I desire them to have a relationship with God, then something is probably out of line because this was God's epicenter and this was Paul's epicenter. He was distressed because they were given to idolatry. And so we need to maintain that same kind of focal point. It's because we care. It's because I remember what it was like to be living and be without purpose. I remember what it was like before I knew Christ and God revealed himself very personally to me to be to believe in God but God was just so wishy-washy God was just so unattainable God was just so distant to me and all of a sudden there's Jesus and he's so tangible and I have words that I can read that are so poignant and so personal and all of a sudden the communication has become very direct and that's what I want other people to have So when I talk to someone and they're very religious, but I don't see the relationship that they can't have with God, I need to be stirred. I need to be provoked. I need to be pushed. And that's what we see here at the beginning, that communication must always be rooted in mission. The mission is to bring a revelation of God's love for them. Second point is resistance isn't always resistance. You know, Paul initially debates with the Epicureans and Stoics. These are the two leading schools of philosophy in the day and culture. They were the intellectual elites. And both of them rejected traditional religion as a whole, meaning that they uh, they didn't have religious sacrifices. They didn't go to a temple or any places of worship. They didn't openly pray. The Epicureans believed that the gods were a long way off and they were happy and they didn't care to be involved, that God started the clock and let it go. And he's out there somewhere, but he's not concerned with what we're doing. And that was much of what the world was going on right then. The Stoics believed that God and the world were one, that was pantheism. However, they were also both still intrigued by Paul when he shared how the resurrection of Jesus has changed his life. You see, a changed life is really a powerful thing. 
Anything that affects you, that causes you to change, is something that's worth noting. Irwin recently did a talk on truth, where he talks about the truth that changes you is the more powerful truth. So what is true? Two plus two equals four, or that I love my wife. Well, you say they're both true, but which one has changed you the most? You see, the truth that it changes you is the truth that impacts you. Here is a life that is changed, and it is, it's curious to them because they want to inquire, what can change me? What can bring change? You know, there's been times where I've misrepresented someone resisting God and failing to recognize that maybe that what I'm saying is just not interesting enough. Maybe they're not resisting God. Maybe they're resisting my proclamation. Maybe they're resisting how I'm portraying things. Maybe my way of portraying things is oversimplistic. Maybe they have questions and what I said doesn't resonate with some questions that they have. And so I see it, well, they're resisting, and then I can quickly say, well, they're resisting me, you know, they're resisting the Bible. I gave them a scripture, they didn't like it, so they're resisting God. But maybe they just didn't understand, or maybe it needed more explanation, or maybe it didn't fit in their worldview at that time. A lot of times people resist things because they're oversimplistic. When I started asking more questions of the scripture, I found more depth in the scripture. It it forced me to look at things with a, a bigger perspective. And let's face it, my perspective, however big it gets, will never be as big as God's. And so there is always room to be able to see things from a higher vantage point to be able to, to look at things and have a God-like perspective instead of just a, a mind-like perspective. And maybe I share something with someone and they're trying to see it from a God-like perspective, but coming at them with this man-like human's perspective, it just seems too small. I, I can't understand that. You know, why would God send a person to hell just because they didn't say a prayer and ask Jesus in their life? What if the person never heard of Jesus? We've all heard this dialogue in some form or not. You see, my conversation is talking like this. Their conversation is, what about these people? What about these people? What about these people? Is God condemning all of them to hell because they don't fit this perspective? You see, and I see it as resistant, but really it's more inquisitive, okay? And I have to remember that resistance isn't always pushing against. Sometimes it's pushing for more. We live in a day where one of the primary roles of the communicator is helping people make sense of their experiences and bringing clarity to the confused and muddled waters of their ongoing spiritual understanding. We go through so many things and we want to know what it means. What does this mean that this happened? How do I understand this? Many of those who appear resistant and cautiously skeptical are really instinctive doubters and aren't instinctively doubters and critics, but they're genuinely searching for truth. And although they appear hard-hearted or rebellious, rebellious to us, their resistance 
and skepticism and doubt are not always signs that they're rejecting God. And so don't be turned off by resistance. It's not always resistance. Third point is God is everywhere. Paul is invited to speak more. In verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know more what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. The Epicureans believed that the gods were remote, uninvolved in their lives, simply looking on from a distance. To a large degree, the Stoics didn't believe in God at all because God and the world were identical. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't begin his discourse by denouncing his audience. He doesn't start talking to down on them, saying, you guys are wrong. He doesn't denounce them at the beginning, nor does he suppose that they'd be convinced by just a dogmatic assertion. I'm just going to tell you what it is. Instead, Paul starts building a common ground. He starts finding an area that they can agree in and then acknowledging already existing spiritual activity that's taking place in their lives. Paul comes along and essentially says, I'm not trying to introduce you to a God who hasn't been involved with your life or a God you've never even seen or encountered. I'm trying to talk to you about a God that you are already aware of. And what an important understanding this is when we're communicating. When we don't start putting someone down, we don't start saying things about them that discredit their belief before we even open the door to our belief. It, it stops the conversation right there. Paul, in essence, is challenging them on what it meant to really know God. You say, you know, God, let's zero in on that. Let, let's zero in on what it really means to know God. Because I saw this statue about an unknown God, right? And, and that's what he goes on to say. And so verse 22, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Again, starting off with an open door. You have an understanding. A lot of people say that he's putting them down, but I don't believe he is. I believe that he's actually appealing to them, saying that I can see you're already aware of spiritual things. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
for he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Oh, let's stop there. Verse 29. Paul, as he starts to have this discussion, he opens the bridge so that they can cross together. You guys are religious. I saw the statue. Here are some of the things that I am saying. In essence, Paul is challenging them on what it really means to know God. He's zeroing in on what does it mean to know God. They see this God present in their lives, but they don't know his name. He's someone you haven't put a name on. And notice, too, that he addresses some things right off the bat. As the Epicureans would believe that God is distant, he says he's not far from any one of us. Or the Stoics would say he is creation. It says that he made these things, that he is bigger than. So he, he already addresses their beliefs, but he does it in a way that's not being combative. He's doing it in a way that is being communicative It's being appreciative of where they're already at. And then he's unfolding things a little bit more. And so they have now the opportunity to hear what he said. They have to filter it through their worldview. And Paul is aware of that. You see, many people tell stories of how God has spoken to them, have have done things. How does this now fit in my worldview of how God has revealed himself to us or maybe God is a part of our conversation but distant? How does this now enter into my worldview? And Paul, in essence, challenging them on what it means to really know God. That idea of the unknown God can make himself known. We can trust that God is already at work in people's lives. He was at work before you and I ever got there. He's been speaking to them. Maybe they're aware of it to some degree. Maybe they're not aware of it at all. It's so interesting the times that I've encountered people who claim to be atheists. And they're just Staunch in their atheism. I don't believe in God. I believe it's just all evolution. It was, you know, just a big bang. There was no designer, all this. And and a matter of a day, the person will say, yeah, I'd like to accept Jesus. And you're like, what happened between yesterday and today? The voice of God that has been speaking to them their whole life all of a sudden made sense. It broke through. It, it was clear. And all their arguments started to crumble. I don't care about what all these things are. I want the change that this voice is calling me to. And so Paul is challenging them on what those things are, believing that God is already there. And I think that's an important step is we need to believe that God is already there and then build on the common ground, affirming the things that are already existing. And that's why conversation is so important. Before you start telling someone what to believe, find out what they already believe. You might save yourself a lot of work. 
and you might find that bridge. Well, yeah, I believe in God. I believe that God loves every man. Do I have a bridge for you? Right? Because we believe God is love. So how do I build that bridge? What does love look like? If God is love, how would he show himself? Well, this is what I believe God has done to show his love. Greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their life for a friend. See, there's the bridge. Now I can cross it because we found it. But if I start discrediting all the things they believe, well, you don't know Jesus, so you don't know God, so God doesn't speak to you. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen to me, boom. Jesus loves you. Great, okay. You know, it's like we're saying the same thing, aren't we? Well, no, first we had a, a bridge of communication, and then we were able to talk. And that's so important. It's so interesting that Paul was invited to speak there at Mars Hill. The philosophers seem to not only trust him, but are intrigued by how his life has been changed. They want to know more. And this is an elite group. This is like speaking at Harvard or Yale, I mean, or Princeton. This is like an Ivy League college. This is being invited to speak somewhere very prominent. At the beginning, they called him a babbler. He didn't take offense. He didn't say, well, I'll show you guys who's the babbler. He actually went there and built the bridge first. And so it's an important thing that we understand. How has the gospel changed my life? How can I reveal that to these people who also need and want their lives changed? Because that's really what they're asking. Paul leans in and he wants them to listen to what he's saying. Ultimately, what they're looking for and what I think all people are hoping for is, is there a God can help me to be a better version of me? Is is there a way that I can become better than who I am? Is there something that can help me get there? Because that's kind of where we all want to be. Even I still want that, right? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Great list of things that should be a part of our conversation with people. Gracious, seasoned with salt, so that I can answer the people. Gracious, seasoned with salt. That's something we want. Fourth aspect is interpret the difference between boldness and dogmatism. Understand there's a difference between being bold and being dogmatic. In verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Repentance is at the heart of Christian faith. Repentance is a deep word. It is a word that I think we have lost the meaning of in so many ways. Repentance is to turn 
and it's the idea of you've missed it. You've missed something. You need to turn back so that you can find it. It's not just that you've done something wrong. It's that you need to to make a turn so that you can find the right. And it's really important that we understand that and we don't start becoming so dogmatic of things that we close the doors. And really, if I would be honest, I'd have to admit that repentance is still a big part of my life. There are things that I still need to repent of. There's things that we still have to deal with. I still have to deal with my selfishness. I still have to deal with my pride. still have to deal with lust for things, for uh, acceptance, lust in other areas. We still have to deal with all these areas in my life. I, I still need repentance to take place. So do other people. You see, and, and us understanding that, that's at the heart of the gospel. I need to turn towards God. Why? Because I am stuck in my brokenness. And repentance means, yeah, there's something wrong. Can we turn and move towards something that's right? Is it warm in here? <laughs> okay. I'm very sensitive after Sunday. Um, notice that Paul's appeal to repent is after his presentation, and it's a general one. It's not personal towards just a certain person, where he starts talking to them and he says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's very inclusive. Okay, it's not God's wanting you to repent. Right? So many of the crusade things that we hear, you need to do this, you need to do this. Or, you know, you get that Bible preacher that you've seen on TV or whatever, and you're a sinner, and you're doing this. And he says, people everywhere. It's very general. He's not pointing out a specific group because it's inclusive. It includes him. It includes me. It includes you. It includes all of us to, to deal with this. And he does deal with it. Our communication can't skirt around that we need to change. That's the whole purpose of Christ's coming is to bring about the awareness of our brokenness to realize that God is the one who has to reveal and deal with this. That's what the cross stands for. I, I have to acknowledge my brokenness. I have to acknowledge that God is the one who changes, <laughs> reveals, and I have to follow after him. And I want people to be able to find that kind of forgiveness. I want people to be able to find that kind of directional change. I'm still trying to find it. I want others to find it too. I want people in my family. I want coworkers. I want people I encounter. I want them to understand that God wants them to change because it's for their benefit. Your life is going to be destroyed if you will not repent. If you will not turn from the selfishness, if you will not turn from the pride, if you will not turn from the covetousness, if you will not turn from the lust for things or whatever, you will be destroyed. It will kill you. And it's important that we understand that. But recognize here, our communication has to be humble. It's gentle. It's easily entreated. And that's what we see here in Paul.
verses 32 and 34. Now then, they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him or followed him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Paul was not a cult leader, but he became the translator to, between God and these people who started to follow him. When it says they believed in him, it's curious. They followed him, they believed in him. It doesn't say that they believed in Jesus, they believed in Paul. Why? Because his life was believable. Because he was in a place where he could actually speak to them. A lot of times when I'm talking to people about dog training and I'm trying to help them understand that the way to communicate with your dog is not to use more words. It's actually to use less words. That if you've got a hyperactive dog, you could probably get rid of 50% of that by just not talking to the dog. If you just shut up and they go, oh, how are you? And make the dog all riled up, you would probably have a much calmer dog if you just said nothing to the dog throughout the day. And your dog wouldn't be like, you never talk with me, all right? The dog's not thinking, we, we never talk like we used to. The dogs don't sit there and do that to each other. You see, but our conversation is based on what we think, not based on what the dog thinks. And so Paul has become a translator to these people about what God is by his life. The ter- church needs leaders who don't, quickly just, or don't only have knowledge about God and the scripture, though that's important, but more important, we need leaders who have authentically and deeply experienced the God who's a mystery and are living in that mystery and are being transformed by that mysterious power. People need to see people who are transformed. We need to be deeply relationally connected to one who we live and move and have our being. That way, this one who was seen as distant is now seen close. And that's what they were looking for. They believed in Paul. They didn't know a whole lot about Jesus, but they believed him. Because his life was changed. How does our lives need to be changed? How does your life need to be changed? What can be changed in your life that would be a signpost to someone else of who God is that would actually speak to someone else just because of the change that is taking place in you? And it could be subtle. It it could be that you talk less, right? Just like the person with their dog. So many people, it's like, oh, that person, man, they always have to get their two cents in. What if you stopped getting your two cents in and you just listened? How how would people see that as a change? You know, one of the things that I'm becoming aware of, and, and I don't know if it's just because I'm getting old or because there's so much commotion happening in our house that it starts after a while just getting to me, but little things are starting to bug me. 
I mean, a little thing will happen, and I just get irked. I'm not saying anything. I'm not, like, saying, that was stupid. What would you do that? At least I don't think I am. Um, but I'm getting bugged by these little things. Karina will do something. She'll leave a hanger on the door, and it's like, well, she doesn't do that. That's me. Um, she'll, she'll do something or, or leave something that bothers me, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, why does that bother me? And, and you see... Why is it bothering me? I, I need to change. I shouldn't let small things like a hanger on the door bother me. Like the way I just twisted that, something I did that she... Anyway. <laughs> I shouldn't let little things bother me. And as pretty soon, those things get smaller and smaller. And pretty soon, everything's bugging me. And I'm one of those grouchy old men. You know, get off the grass, kid, you know, (laughs) but grandpa, (laughs) you know, and so we need to be changed. The definition for preaching is a series of words which mean to contemplate and to hand on to others the fruits of your own contemplation. Isn't that lovely? Preaching is to contemplate and then give to others what you've contemplated. I think that's a beautiful definition of communication. Preaching cannot be reduced to simply transferring information or knowledge. We create problems when we reduce the mystery of who God is to what we can learn in a classroom. We take away the mystery. And then all of a sudden, God becomes very, very boring. And I think uh, the reason we find our culture in a post-Christian, and what we talk about by post-Christian is where Christianity and its importance is on the decline, right? Christianity used to be something was important. A lot of people think we need to get it back to being important, but they fail to recognize that it was left for a reason. In other words, why did people want to leave it behind? If it was so inviting and so transforming, why would they want to abandon it? But the problem is it stopped becoming transforming. It started becoming something you could learn, period. Just learn the Bible. No, I need to be transformed by the living God who reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. And that's what the conversation with Paul is taking place We don't want to limit these things. We must hold on to the value of knowledge and learning and hold the awareness of God's unending mystery at the same time. Outsiders want to see how God's power, truth, and grace are transforming our life so they can begin believing that he will transform theirs. That's why they believed in Paul, because they saw a transformed life. Do they believe in you? Is your life transformed? For us to effectively communicate, people must conclude that we're honest and live in such a way that they can see we really do know God. It doesn't mean we know everything. It just means we know God. I know children who seem to know God better than people who know the Bible. Just because of their honesty, because of their love, because of how they just... just God just comes out from them. He emanates from them. And I see people who know a lot of information. They don't come and give me a hug. 
even though they don't know me. But I have kids who do. It's like, what's that? You ever get just, I mean, a kid come up and give you a big hug. You're like, you don't even know me. I want to cry all of a sudden, right? He loves me. He doesn't even know me and he loves me. See, I think God's a lot like that kid. And they want to see the transformation because they want it to take place in their life as well. So I want to ask, conclude by asking some questions and, and these aren't rhetorical. I'd like some interaction with these how can we look at what Paul did and apply it to us in our culture? Any thoughts? What do we see that Paul did that we can take and apply to how we live here today? I think I talked about some of them. <laughs> Any thoughts? How can we see what Paul did and apply it to our culture? What are some of the things Paul did that we can do that would be effective in communicating to the people around us? Okay, building the bridges instead of showing the differences? Good answer, good answer. Um, What are some of the temples that are in our culture that have the unknown God in their midst engraved on them? I mean, we don't have statues, but what are some of the unknown gods that are out there? Sure, patriotism, that could definitely be it. Yeah, it's kind of a stoic philosophy where God is nature. Yeah, the pantheism. And so that's some of these areas where they see nature as restoring their soul, but can we get them to see the God who created nature to restore their soul. I remember I had a conversation with uh, one of the people down in La Paz after our creativity tour, and she was kind of saying that, that she gets, you know, she experiences God when she does these things. I said, well, I don't doubt that. I think God is there, but the thing is, you know, nature doesn't forgive, you know? And it's like, that was kind of my, yeah, I see God there too, but... I want you to see more. You know, nature is pretty unforgiving. But sometimes I need something that's more forgiving. And I believe that there is a God who created the beauty who is also forgiving, you know. Trying to bring more to that conversation. But yeah, definitely nature, uh, patriotism. Anything else? What about technology, science? Some people see that as the unknown God, right? I put my trust in information out there and then trying to break through that unknown God. You know, it's so interesting that, again, this dogmatism has put science and religion in separate categories. Mm -hmm. I, I think understanding what the priest means to her, what does the priest impart to her, you know, maybe helping her not so much to discredit the priest that she has seen and believed in, but to also help her to see that Jesus is our high priest um, so that she can start seeing that. You know, one of the things that they do in the Muslim countries to bring people to know Christ is they don't 
ask them to denounce their belief in Muhammad or in the Quran. They just bring them to an understanding of Christ and let God deal with that. Because the minute they say, well, you need to stop believing in the Quran, they would hit a wall. But when they start unveiling Christ to them, the people are drawn by the person of Christ and they want more and more and more. And pretty soon they're reading their Bibles instead of the Quran. And then they decide, oh, this is true and that's not what we want to follow. And so maybe something similar. It's like, let's, let's start to open up the understanding of who Christ is and the things that are there in Scripture without even worrying about it priest or not you know who cares if she believes in a priest or not that's not the point the point is how is god encountering her that's why i say what does the priest mean to her what is the priest imparting to her how do we get god to impart those things instead of a priest maybe that can give some insight okay but there's a lot of things this gives this unknown god kind of idea and so it's a challenge for us you know, how do we have deeper conversations in those areas? How do we get rid of that chasm between science and faith? How do we bridge people's understanding of nature and the creation as opposed to the creator? You know, how do we get people out of their hope that this country is going to be the answer to all? I'm telling you, patriotism, people will give up their faith for patriotism in a heartbeat. A lot of people. A lot of people. It's kind of a scary thing. Um, people who believe the Bible, don't you dare talk about my country or my political party. Um, what can we do as desiring to be leaders to become more equipped in our understanding of worldviews and as a result expand our ability of understanding things more fully? How can we understand more of what's happening in our culture? We live at a time like Paul here where these people were like a completely different world compared to the children of Israel and where they were living. And that's why Paul was so equipped to deal with it because he knew this world. In fact, he quotes them. How can we get a better worldview? Where are a lot of, in our country, right, the United States, where are a lot of worldviews coming from. What are some things that would promote worldviews? Social media? Music? Movies? Entertainment? TED Talks? Right? I mean, all these, there's books. What are the number one books that are out there right now? You know, what are the number one TV shows? What are the number, what's the number one song? What's the number one movie? I think it's Pirates of the Caribbean right now, right? I mean, being involved with those things and hearing those, you see, because the Pirates of the Caribbean, I haven't seen the movie yet, but there is a story. There is a moral, if you will, being told, do you know what it is? What are people connecting to? Can you connect to it? YouTube. My grandchildren, those girls are on YouTube all the time. Life is YouTube for them. And people are making a living just making videos on YouTube. Making millions. Some of them are like the stupidest videos. At least to me, it's like, man, that's like silly. They're getting 2 million, 3 million followers watching it. 
and they're getting paid to have it because so many people are watching. That's a worldview. And if I just say, oh, that's stupid, I don't want to listen to that, well, then you'll never know that worldview unless you engage. Now, I can't know every worldview, but you've got to step into some. You will never understand the worldview until you step into it. And for years, I was kind of living in this bubble, this Christian bubble that says, you know, come out and be separate. You know, there's a scripture there. Well, how did Paul quote them if he came out and was separate? How could he understand these things if he was called to be separate, if that's what it meant? Again, I think we're talking about two different things there, and that's another talk. But anyway, that's some of the worldviews. So then what poets will you quote in the effort to connect to your post-Christian pluralistic world? Quoting authors, quoting songs, musicians, quoting uh, writers. I mean, I don't know how many times I've quoted Brene Brown, right? She happens to be a Christian also, but she has broken down some of the barriers. She's welcomed in the, the world as well. I know a lot of people I know who aren't followers of Christ have read her and appreciated her work. So when I quote Brene Brown, I've connected to them by their poet. That kind of understanding. Okay, those are the kinds of things. Or again, a TED Talk, things like that. What doesn't our culture know about spirituality that we as communicators can teach and guide them in? What doesn't our culture know about spirituality that we can guide them in? What comes to mind? What doesn't the world at large in the United States know about spirituality that we can guide them in? Tell me something about God that you know about God by your experience. Gracious, okay. God's gracious. Yeah, you know, when you've encountered God, have you found forgiveness? Have you found grace? Spirituality is in the world, is it something personal? Is your faith personal? Has God spoken to you about the things in your life? Has God changed you? Is God changing you still? See, I think those are things that we can convey. Those are spiritual things that we can convey to the culture that the culture wants to know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone is looking for that in some way or another. And it gets misguided and we give in to idols like success, right? Like fame, like pleasure, like drugs. We give in to a lot of things and use them to replace this longing that we have, okay? That's why recovery groups are so effective because you got a lot of people who have gone and tried something and found this wasn't it and they needed something to change them to get somewhere else. And that's the first step in a recovery group. I can't do this. I need help. I need something other. That's repentance. Right? And that's the first step. And so I think there's a lot of these things that we know that maybe we just never thought about as being ways of communication. 
that we've never thought about our faith or, or the things that we have maybe just embraced and have become so much a part of our life that we don't think about them and how the world needs some of the things that are just normal for us. Oh yeah, I can sit and pray and talk to God anytime. One of the things that's always been interesting when I have people who know I'm a, a you know, a pastor or people in my family, they'll say, oh, can you pray for me? Or can you pray? They like it when you pray because they feel like, oh, they're talking to God. And me, it's like, you know, I should have something more profound, more, you know, I, I just take it for granted that I can talk to God. And to some people, that is just, they never even thought that you could do that. And so there you are having a communication with God and they're seeing that and they go, oh, I'd like that. That's a great place to have that interaction and help them to understand, you know, you can talk to God like this anytime you want to. You don't have to wait. You can start right now where you're at and God will talk back. It's one of the things I love about Irwin's book, Crave, is... His point isn't to convince you that there's a God. It's to get you to start a conversation with the God who's already speaking. And if I can get you to start talking, maybe you'll start hearing he's talking. That's it. Any other thoughts or questions on this? I know I've touched on this passage, I don't know how many times. I'm sure I'll touch on it quite a few more. But any thoughts or questions that were maybe sparked? Yeah. I'm glad it's eye-opening. No, I, I think it's it's always good to be open to how God would speak to us. I think we're we are in danger when we think we have God figured out. You know, we have some clarity, we have some understanding. Some things just resonate to our core, but then we understand it in deeper layers. You know, God is love. I think we can all say, yeah, man, I got that. But I don't think I understand that as fully. I didn't understand that as fully 10 years ago as I do now and what that means. And I hope in 10 years to understand it even more fully, you know, and I think when we get to a place where we think we can have it all figured out, then we stop growing and it stops being alive and dynamic, you know, and that's a danger. But then some people will say, oh, you're, you know, changing things. I, I don't think I'm changing things. I think I'm seeing things that are really there. And to quote Bob Bell, once you see, you can't unsee. Once you taste, you can't untaste. You know, once, once something is opened up to you and it's revealed, you can't say, oh, okay, forget it. It's like, now what do I do with this? How, what do I do with what I see now? What do I do with how I see Scripture unveiled now and it just makes so much more sense how do i deal with this and the fact that it's kind of making you uncomfortable i think that's a good thing i think that's the natural result of when we get pushed out of that bubble i'm I'm glad you're thinking and that's a good thing and that's encouraging lauren for me to hear that i mean because that's Part of what I want us to be, I want us, it's part of what I feel that I'm supposed to do as a pastor is to help people see more, especially people who have been where I have been and to be able to see more just like I think I see more. Um, not that I 
see more than other people. I see more than I used to. And maybe someone else is in that same place and they can see more as well. You know, I think that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, Some people, you know, they do ministry different, but I think that's part of, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I think that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor. I'm trying to do it so it doesn't freak people out. You know, yes, I think. Yeah, no, I think whenever there's change, there's always excitement and the desire to kind of be involved and kind of commit ourselves to those things. Um, I, I think there is some responsibility to the organizations, for lack of a better word, that when that conversion is made, then put people in a bubble. You know, there are some groups that do that. You know, okay, good, you're with us now. We're going to indoctrinate you. You know, and then it becomes, in a sense, protection. Um, I, pastor, I, who's one of my pastors, he, he used to say, if my job is to brainwash our children because if I don't brainwash him, someone else will. And, and it's like, oh, that's kind of scary thinking about that. You know, you're just going to brainwash them? Is that what God wants? Brainwash people? You know, but at the time it's like, yes, that's right. Brainwash. We're going to do what's right. And then years later it's like, oh, gosh, that's so, so not like Christ. Um, at least my perspective. And so those are the kinds of things. I think exuberance, but then that organization is responsible. We're responsible. When people come to faith in Christ and are here, we're responsible with that, how they develop, you know. That's a scary thing. I'm not quite sure how that all works. I mean, it's a lot of layers, again, but we want to be a place where they can connect, where they can grow, but we want them in their growth to understand, you know, and not get boxed in. So, (laughs) yeah, it came, thinking back years later, it still kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but um, yeah, I, I think I know what they meant. You know, and it is that ring. It's like we just want them to be so indoctrinated with the truth that that's all they want. You know, but I think questions are important. And I think one of the things that has happened is, especially we see it in churches all over the United States, after high school, they go into college and then they leave the church because up until high school, their parents have control tell them what they have to do. This is the way it's got to be. They get into college and now they have the freedom to think. And it's like, wait a second. I never thought about this like this. Now they're getting input from professors. And instead of vilifying the professors, we failed to help them in the world that they were going to encounter. You know, And then the questions they're being asked by the professors are bigger than the questions they were being asked in church. And so now God seems way too small for the world that I'm now aware of. And then it's like, I can't believe in a God who's that small. Well, she's got to be aware of what's out there to some degree, right? She can't be in the bubble and trying to keep the kid in the bubble. She's got to, you know, give them. And there's so much, I think, more available, especially in the Christian arena, um, that is helpful to get out to the other areas. There's so many authors that can be read, philosophers. Um, I think I think about how many times I know of 
where people, I remember one time my niece, I was listening to a Stephen Curtis Chapman song and she just loved it. She goes, oh, I love that song. And um, I got her the CD, right? I gave it to her. And I thought, what a tragedy that Stephen Curtis Chapman is on a Christian label when it's something that my niece, who's not a follower of Jesus, really got something out of. I just watched a video of his on Memorial Day, if you guys ever seen that. He does a song on Memorial Day. Oh, it's, you know, it's a heartbreaker. It's a beautiful song. And it's just like, I think a lot of people could appreciate this, but we have made it our books. We have made it our radio stations. We have made it our and we've just made it our world, you know? And think of how tragic that is that we've made it so small that we can't share it with so many. Where if we would have quit worrying about it being ours and saw that this is the world's gift, it's not just ours. This is the, the gospel that's meant for everyone that I should communicate it to everyone. Wouldn't it be great if we heard... Chris Tomlin songs on regular stations just because, oh yeah, here's something you guys might enjoy. Just like you enjoy, you know, whoever else. You might enjoy this. Why? Because there's a lot of you out there that are doing, but no, we've limited it. It's us against them. And I guess bottom line with what I see in Paul, he has no us against them going on in this dialogue. I've got it right, you've got it wrong. He's including these things, but trying to uplift it but he's a part of it, you know? And he uses their Bible and not his. He uses their poets and not his scriptures. He never mentions the scriptures in this chapter. Neither does he in chapter 14 when he and <clears throat> Barnabas are tried to made worship, tried to be worship. Um, Barnabas or Silas. Um, and so again, we see his ability to adapt. And I think with your question, that mom needs to have the ability to adapt. She needs to educate her children in things that they're going to be learning and understanding. Any other thoughts? Anyone want to share anything? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the example of Paul and how he communicated so well with so much wisdom to those who were so far outside of the story that Christ came from. And yet he brought it right to the heart of where their need was. And Lord, once again, it it pushes us to see that are you the God of the Jews only? No, you're the God of the Gentiles. Are you the God of the Christians only? No, you're the God of the entire world. And Lord, may we not limit you. May we build bridges to connect people to you. Lord, I pray that our desire would be for people to have the kind of relationship we have. And, And Lord, Maybe even that's what needs to take place. Maybe our relationship with you needs to be more. And if so, Lord, work in our hearts to make that so. 
May our hunger for you push us to learn more about you and to find out how we can understand you better. And Lord, I pray that we would constantly be hungry and thirsty, that we would constantly repent and grow, that we would ever be longing and searching after you. And I thank you for this time and for your love, your grace. Thank you in Jesus' name. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.